Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. All right, so I just want to take a minute and just thank our support people. So those of you who came with um, a caregiver, a spouse, a partner, a friend, um, let's just take a minute and give our caregivers a round of applause. Um, We hope that you know that we're here, we're with you, we're in the trenches, we get it, and we're going to just be here with you through the good days, the bad days, the in-between days, Um, and we hope that you guys can just reach out to us, you know, connect with us via social media, connect with the people that you meet here in person, Um, and just know that, you know, each of us, we're here for you, and we also care a lot about you as an individual, and if you're a caregiver, we care about you too. We understand that this diagnosis really has it plays a role in affecting everyone who's involved, family, friends. Um, So we just, we want to honor that. We want to take a minute again to thank our presenting sponsor, Castle Biosciences. They are our premier sponsor for the event. So let's just give them a round of applause. They have been one of the biggest cheerleaders um, of ACIS from the very start, and we are just grateful for their continued support and for all of the rest of our sponsors. So if you have not yet had a chance to meet the rest of the sponsors, those who are here in person, we have various representatives from, I believe, Immunicore, IDEA, Aura Biosciences, uh, Trisalis, Delcath, and Replimune. And the Northwest Eye Design is actually uh, Todd and Tanya Cranmore are going to be presenting later today. Just in case you're worried about not being able to be in two places at once like I am, because like it stresses me out. Um, but... There are going to be recordings, and these recordings will be made available to the I Believe podcast. If you have not subscribed to that, the best way to do it is to download or open up a listening app like Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, or Podbean, and you actually can go and search us by searching the I Believe podcast. You can also find us on YouTube, if that's easier, if that's a little more you know, friendly, and you'll be able to eventually find the I Believe 2023 playlist on YouTube, which will have all of the recordings, videos, subtitles, all the things. Just a reminder for those of you here in person, we do have our dinner gala tonight. It'll be upstairs in, do we know what room? Vision room. Okay, it's in the vision room, so look on all the signs for where it says vision room. I believe it's 24th floor. Okay, 24th floor. Wow, we're going way up. The vision room is a good room. Okay. Okay, 28th floor in the vision room. For those of you here in person, we're serving you dinner. There's a cocktail hour, and it's just a night to leave ocular melanoma behind. We're going to be talking about a lot of medical stuff in this room today. We're going to be talking about a lot of things just across the board, and it's all going to be very, very focused on your diagnosis. So the goal of tonight is leave it all behind. If you're virtual, then please just make sure that, you know, take a minute, celebrate, just celebrate the fact that you've made it this far and that you're still here today. Again, our event photographer is here and he is uh, from the Netherlands. We're so grateful to have him. And Jerome is going to be taking pictures throughout the event. And if you have a specific picture request, please make sure to check in with him. 
The only um, kind of minor change that we've made to our agenda today is for those of you here in person, uh, Jerome is requesting that if you can join us at the beginning of the lunch hour. So when we dismiss for lunch from both track one and track two, head back to the main room here and we're gonna try and take a group picture up here on the stage. Okay, so we're gonna go ahead and... Oh, yes. Sorry. Did I skip it? Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, um, sorry about that. We're having a little technical problem here, but um, I wanna go back to the Thriver thing that, that was up. I wanted to talk to you guys about, you guys are all, we call this a survivorship seminar, but we really want you to take another look at it and, and look at it as a thrivership. You guys, are, we want you to thrive with your diagnosis. We don't want you to look at the downside of it all the time. We all have to live with this every day and we all know that, but we can thrive while we do that. We don't have to go the bad way, we can go the positive way. So by taking steps to be here today, you guys are all thrivers. So I really want to give you a round of applause for taking the, the time to either log in at home or show up in person because you guys are now taking the steps to thrive with this diagnosis. And you guys are taking steps to learn about it so that you know how to handle your disease and have a positive life. So I want you guys to think of your, your, all of you as thrivers. You are not just an ocular melanoma patient. You are a thriver. And so we are going to talk about thrivership a lot. So thank you so much. What, what do we have? All right, so we're gonna go ahead and bring up Dr. Stacy, who is our host from UW Medicine. Whoops, back. Um, so thank you. Let's welcome Dr. Stacy to the stage. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's great to see you all again today. Um, as I said yesterday, I really am just impressed with the amount of community that exists in this room and in the virtual rooms as well. As I said yesterday, it really is more important than we realize to be surrounded by people who understand what we're going through and who can empathize with us. And so today I wanna, I wanna echo what Melody said. Um, it's, it's about thriving. It's not about just surviving with a diagnosis. It's about thriving. There are gonna be some things discussed today that might make you uncomfortable. None of us up here on the stage are gonna be offended if you walk out. There's two rooms, walk to the other room if you don't wanna be here. I'm not going to be offended. Um, I would love to have any questions uh, you have about anything that comes up. If you feel like you don't wanna ask a question in front of everybody, let's talk outside or you can get my email and we can talk over email afterwards. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you guys today and I have a few things to share and uh, I'm just really happy to be here and thank you for bringing this all to Seattle. All right, so we're gonna take a look at what's in store for today. If you have not, please check out the agenda in your bags or that's out on the paper. Um, for those of you virtually, you can check out the agenda on the social media posts, but this is what you're gonna see. We're gonna be running through all of these sessions here. The main thing you need to know is that 12 o'clock we have lunch. So we're gonna take a break from 12 to 1 p.m. Pacific time. And then we're gonna come back to our separate tracks at one o'clock, have one more session in separate rooms. And then the final session at 2 p.m. will be taking 
taking place in this room, in the main room, and in track one. So for those of you joining virtually, just pay attention to which area you're going to in the lobby uh, and just make sure that you're joining the sessions that you want. Like we said, these are all going to be recorded. So we've got cancer and melanoma, radiation basics, ocular melanoma treatments and side effects, prosthetics 101, and then your prognosis at diagnosis as well as metastatic disease 101. In track two, we're going to talk about caregiving, and we're going to talk about the difference between palliative care and hospice and when to call who. We're going to talk about being just kind of done with ocular melanoma. What do you do when you want space from your diagnosis with a patient panel? Uh, and we're going to then talk about research money not equaling a cure. So if you're curious about that one, head in there. You're going to get to hear uh, how a drug gets to market and just what really goes into the research realm that makes it possible for us to get somewhere like FDA approval with any of the ones that become FDA approved. After lunch, they're going to have a survivorship and then they will have break time or come back to track one for the metastatic discussion. Discussion. Um, right now, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and dismiss you to your tracks. So just take a minute as we're pulling our next speakers on stage. And if you decide to go to the second room, head over here or head over to track two in the lobby. Thanks. All right, I'm gonna actually go ahead and introduce our speakers for this room. Um, so for those of you heading out to track two, head on over there and we will see you soon. Um, but I'm gonna go ahead and bring up Dr. Dennis Stacy if he's here. Oh, he's there in the back. So Dr. Dennis Stacy, if you don't mind coming up to the stage with us and um, Lucy Innes, who is working on her doctorate as well. We're gonna just call her doctor because it's easier. Um, so Dr. Dennis Stacy is uh, a cancer researcher, a molecular biologist, is that correct? Yeah, molecular biologist. And he is actually Andrew Stacy's, Dr. Andrew Stacy's father. So they are here together. Um, and I will go ahead and let you guys take a seat. All right. So um, let's see. Since the 1980s, Dr. Dennis Stacy's laboratory was focused on understanding how cell division is controlled. So currently, his laboratory in Cleveland, Ohio, focuses on identifying a novel cancer treatments and based on observations that are made in his laboratory. So he like looks under the microscope at all the cells. Like I geek out over this stuff. Um, Dr. Andrew Stacy is here from UWI Institute, and we are so thankful for him. Um, and he is an ocular oncologist. For those of you who are local, you guys know him well. Those of you who do not, you will be glad to know him. Um, and then Dr. Innes is a patient herself. She was just diagnosed last year, and she's working on her uh, on her PhD at, is it Weill? Weill Cornwell University. So thank you guys for being here. We're going to go ahead and move into the presentation. Dr. Dennis Stacy will start. Good morning. I'm uh, honored uh, to be among such uh, amazing, courageous people. And I'm going to discuss what is cancer. But to begin with, I'd like to talk about cells. Cells make up our entire body. Our tissues and organs are composed of cells. A cell, in its very simplest form, on uh, 
on the left here is a nucleus containing the genes, and there's an envelope surrounding it, and between the nucleus and the envelope are the business parts of the cell. Now, this simple representation of a cell doesn't really look like any cells that would exist in our body except maybe during very early embryogenesis. We have these round cells that you can see. But very rapidly, these embryonic cells grow and they change into the different structures of different cells that compose our body. And you can see some of them re represented here. Each of these cells has a structure that is tied to its location in the body and to its function. So that in our bodies, we have a terrific team of cells working together, each doing its own thing, each specifically designed to be able to work together, and they're all working together for the good of the whole. And um, if you look, and it's probably too small to see, but cells tend to be rather social in nature. So you can see here that uh, there is a representation of a, a cartoon of the, uh, the location of cells in, in the eye. And when that is viewed in a microscope, it appears as though these cells are actually in layers. And cells like to be in layers. And I'm going to use the cartoon at the right as an indication of cells, two cell types, one on the top, one on the bottom, and they're separated by a separation that we sometimes call a basement membrane. So this is the way we're going to think about cells going forward. Now, all the cells in the body are highly disciplined. They're highly skilled at what they do, and they work together as a team. So how is it possible that some of the cells could completely forget their purpose, uh, they could start becoming eminently selfish, taking up resources and space that were designed for other purposes, and putting the entire body at risk. How could this happen? The answer is in the genes. Genes are composed of DNA, and recall that DNA is a very long molecule, and it has alternating sequences of the ATGC bases. The sequence of the ATGC is the genetic code, and the cell is designed to be able to read that sequence the way you or I might read a novel to gain information. This information is profoundly complex and complete. It, it is designed to tell each cell type exactly where to go, what to look like, and what to do. Not only that, but the information contained in our genes can tell the cells what to do in the case of injury, disease, there are plans, there are backup plans, there are backup plans to backup plans, and so forth and so on. It is extremely extremely complete. So what happens in the case of the cancer cell? What could have gone wrong? All cells follow the instructions that they have been given. Unfortunately, the cancer cell is also following the instructions it is given. The problem is in the instructions. The problem is in the genes.
The genes are composed of a sequence. If we cause there to be a change, if, if a change takes place in the DNA, the change takes place in the instructions. We call such a change a mutation. And mutations take place, they're controlled by a number of things that we are familiar with, ultraviolet light, drugs, chemicals. We can avoid those things, but we cannot avoid all mutations. Unfortunately, mutations are part of life. The copying of DNA creates mutations. So there's no way we can completely avoid mutations. Now, in most cases, cases mutations are immediately corrected by the cell. In those few cases where a mutation might persist, the cell is generally destined to die. It is only in rare cases that we might have a cell indicated here that is able to live on and still contain the mutation. Now, most mutations, we have two copies of every gene, most mutations would probably not have an effect. But consider the possibility that this mutation is in the RAF gene, which is commonly mutated in melanoma. RAF is a switch. It's a switch I used to personally study. It can be on or off and tell the cell whether to divide or not divide. Unfortunately, it is possible to mutate the RAF gene so that it is constantly on. So it is telling the cell constantly to divide. And the cell starts to divide. But as soon as that happens, those cells and the cells around it realize that something is wrong and a, and a backup system kicks into place. For example, a backup system that would tell the cells to stop. The retinoblastoma gene is one of, those, one of those genes that cause proliferation or cell growth to stop. And so you have a few cells, they're caused to stop. Probably nothing happens throughout your life. The challenge is that there are now a group of cells that have one mutation. And it is possible that one of those, possible, very unlikely, but possible, that one of those cells has another mutation, for example, in the retinoblastoma gene, which is keeping it from dividing. Now you have, shown on the bottom, a situation where cancer is formed. You have two mutations in this case. The cells grow, they form a very small cancer, but that cancer is contained by the basement membrane. These cells still believe that it is not right to pass the basement membrane. This is called a carcinoma in situ. Person of my age, there are probably many within my body. Uh, it's not a good thing, probably not a serious thing, but once again, a number of cells that have two mutations now and another mutation could allow the cells to grow past the basement membrane. When this happens now, we have a cancer. We have a carcinoma, an invasive carcinoma, and this is a serious situation. Remember that the cancer is named for the crab. The crab has a central body, and out from that central body, finger-like projections grow. And this is what happens with cancer. The cells start to grow out in finger-like projections. This is a serious situation. It is not the most serious situation because it is possible for cells to break the very most cardinal rule of cells, and that is never to grow where they are not supposed to grow and never to grow alone. 
But it is possible under some circumstances that cells are able to break away from the main tumor and colonize new tumors at various locations in the body. This is, this is a metastatic tumor, and it is very serious. And let me emphasize the seriousness. I talked about two genes that might be mutated in the formation of cancer. I'm not sure that any cancer has ever involved those two genes. In fact, every cancer has its own set of genes that are mutated in the process of the formation of cancer. Not only that, even in a given cancer, there are cells with different mutations. So this forms a very great challenge. This is the challenge that we face, but I have very, very good news. <laughs> First of all, it is possible to avoid mutations and to find cancer early. The best news, however, is sitting with us here in this room and in offices and hospitals throughout the country, and that is the caregivers. Caregivers are amazing people. I've had the opportunity to teach pre-medical students in college for many years, and I've also taught in a very, in, in a fine medical school with, with, uh, with medical students. And I can tell you that be a to be a doctor, you have to be much more than brilliant. You have to have personal characteristics that set you apart almost from anyone else. The doctors that are around us are the most outstanding people you will meet. They are dedicated and they are focused, they are knowledgeable, their lives, their hearts, and their focus is upon other people. So that's the best thing you've got going for them, and they have terrific tools. But let's not also forget the scientists. Uh, scientists are a different breed. We dream. We work hard, but we're a different breed. But let me tell you some of the things that scientists have done. I entered graduate school, and this year did actually take place, I remember it, 1970. I started graduate school. I was going to be a cancer researcher, and I personally was going to, cause, was going to cure cancer. I was confident. I still am. There were 10,000 of us at that time and hundreds of thousands now. We all believe that we're going to be the one. The problem is in 1970, we didn't know a single gene that was involved in the control of cell growth. We didn't know a single cancer gene. In 1977, when I entered graduate, when I uh, became a postdoc, tumor viruses had demonstrated the existence of maybe 30 cancer genes. When I had my own laboratory and was studying in this early on, 1985, maybe 100, today 500, and we don't know how many exactly there will be, but there are still tumor genes being identified. So we've made a great deal of progress. What is more remarkable are the tools that are available. The tools that are available now are striking. We can change genes. We can focus genes. We can understand genes. We can sequence them. The tools are amazing. And I'd like to just end with an experience that I had when I was a very young man just out of college. I happened to be in a small uh, village in, in England, just north of Cambridge, England, and I just happened to walk in front of a plaque in a, in a building, and it said, this is the summer home of Sir Alexander Fleming. Now, at that point, Alexander Fleming was one of my heroes. Uh, he had passed away for some time, but I was able to speak with one of his neighbors and he said that Alexander Fleming was a very simple and common man. He joined with the community in all of their functions, and they all 
adored him. He was very, uh, he, he diminished the importance of, of, his, uh, of his discovery. He said that he'd been out in the garden with his boots and he tracked mud into the laboratory and contaminated one of his cultures. Turns out that that contamination was penicillin mold. I, I bring this up because the day before he tracked those boots into his laboratory, no one on earth would have believed that such a thing as an antibiotic existed. That day, everything changed. Now, cancer is not a simple disease. Cancer is many diseases. It's a classification of diseases. But everyone has a cancer that is important to them. And there is always the possibility, and I would say, to hold out hope that, that someone may track something into the laboratory. They may stumble across something at any time. At any time, this could happen. And there are hundreds of thousands of us who are working day and night to be able to provide the, the physicians among us with the tools. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you very much. Are there any questions? Okay, so just really quick, I forgot to run this through at the beginning, but we will take questions. They will be from about 8.40 to 8.50, um, roughly the last 10 minutes of this session. If you are here in person, please do us a favor. If you think of questions from Dr. Dennis Stacy's uh, session, then please write them down now so that when 8.40 comes around, you're not trying to write down scrambling to think of something. So if you don't see the question papers on your table, Please use the notebooks that are out and just write a question down there. We will come around and collect those questions again around the 8.40 mark, so in about 20 minutes. Uh, those of you online, please send your questions in virtually, and we will do our best to get to whatever we can. Hello. Thank you so much, Dr. Stacy. It's a unique opportunity for me to teach with Dr. Stacy in the same meeting. We haven't done this before. Um, uh, as you see, we're going to build from the ground up, from what is cancer all the way up to our treatments for uveal melanoma. Um, just a little background for me. So my slides, uh, this is Dr. Andrew Stacy. We could put the, um, yep, there we go. Um, a little background from me. So I grew up uh, mostly in Cleveland, Ohio, while my father was researching at the Cleveland Clinic uh, in Ohio. And I saw him working in the lab and working on cancer and writing grants and doing all these things. And uh, I remember, I worked with him too. We even published papers together when I was in high school. Um, we did research together. But I remember um, looking at his job and thinking, nah. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to be like that. So I went to college and I studied statistics. And I thought, OK, I'm going to do analytical mathematics. I even got a graduate degree in statistics. Uh, but the problem is, when I was doing statistics, I realized that what I really liked was the medical side, the biology side of statistics. And so my emphasis changed to biostatistics and clinical trials. And that led me to medical school. And I thought, OK, I'll go to medical school. I'll do something else. and then. I realized how much I liked cancer in medical school. And I thought, OK, well, I'll take care of cancer. And so I became an ocular oncologist. And now that I'm an ocular oncologist, my mind is plagued by research and laboratory ideas. And the more I do it, the more I'm moving into a lab. And I can see myself becoming my father. <laughs> exactly the job and position I didn't 
want when I was in high school, but we're, we're growing closer. Our careers are growing closer together. Um, so we talked a, a, about what cancer is, and I want to talk a little bit about what uveal melanoma is, which is an even more kind of amorphous question. What is uveal melanoma? For reasons we'll discuss. Um, we talked about the biology of cancer. The, the goals here that I have are to talk a little bit about ocular melanoma or uveal melanoma, uh, the epidemiology or the statistics of uh, uveal melanoma, and how it's diagnosed. Um, I'm not getting an advance. Oh, there we go. So um, we talked a lot about this. I just want to go over some of the words that you hear in oncology conferences. Um, what is oncology or cancer? Cancer, the word, comes from uh, crab, like you heard about from the other Dr. Stacy. Oncology is the study of growths or the study of masses inside of the body. And you may hear us use the words neoplasia, which just means new growth, neo, neoplasia, growth. They're all words that mean the same thing. Something is growing in the body that should not be growing in the body. So what is ocular melanoma? Now, I, if, you, if you've heard me speak, you've heard me say this. Um, the, the words here are important. Ocular melanoma is a little bit generic. Um, though what we refer to as ocular melanoma in this room is really uveal melanoma. There are other forms of eye cancer that are very, very different. Things like conjunctival melanoma, which is a melanoma in the skin of the eye, which disease process is vastly different than what we're talking about today, which is uveal melanoma. So what is the uvea of the eye, or what we refer to as ocular melanoma? The eyeball has a middle layer. So the ball, the, the ball is hollow, like a basketball, but it's lined with three different layers. There's an outer layer called the sclera, that's a hard shell. There's an inner layer called the retina, that's what provides our vision. And then there's a middle layer throughout the entire eye that provides vascular support or blood vessel support. And there's three distinct structures in the uvea that are important to us in this room. The structure in the very front is the one we can see. That's the iris. The iris is the colored part of the eye that gives you your pupil. Right behind the iris, but where you cannot see, is something called the ciliary body. Ciliary body has a few different uh, functions. One of them is to produce the fluid that keeps the eye uh, full. And the other is actually to help us focus in and out. It's the muscle that weakens when we're 40 years old and when we all start to lie and say that we don't need reading glasses, that's the muscle that's, that's, that we're lying about. In the back of the uvea is called the um, choroid, and the choroid is the blood vessel supply to the retina. The choroid is what is um, most often problematic in ocular or uveal melanoma. It's where upwards of 90% of melanomas develop. Here's just a schematic of how the melanoma develops in each of these situations. You can see here there a normal schematic of the eye and the three locations in the uvea where you can develop melanoma in the iris in the front, the ciliary body in the middle, and the choroid in the back. As Dennis Stacy said, the problem with cancer is mutation. And for a long time, we didn't know the mutations inside of uveal melanoma, but we do know some of them now, probably not all of them. 
We know that BAP1, GNAQ, and GNA11 are very important driver mutations that allow the melanoma in the eye to grow when it shouldn't grow. We have all those backup systems that Dennis talked about um, that should be blocking the melanoma from growing, but it's not being blocked because of these mutations. Um, where, what, how often do we see uveal melanoma? It's a rare cancer, technically, though it is the most common cancer inside of the eye. Uh, it is the second most common site for melanoma in the body, though it's a distant second. Skin melanoma makes up about 90% of melanomas, and ocular melanoma only makes up about 3 to 5% of melanomas. The incidence increases with age. So when you get into the seventh and eighth decade, the incidence increases, though the median age is about 62. Unfortunately, it can happen in children, um, uh, even in, in childhood. Um, there are some risk factors associated with um, uveal melanoma, the biggest of which is lighter skin tones. The lighter skin tone, the more risk of developing uh, uveal melanoma, though individuals with darker skin tones can also develop the cancer. It affects about six people per million, which means that in the state of Washington here, we get about 50 new cases a year, and in the Pacific Northwest, about 150 new cases a year. Interestingly, unlike the skin, sunlight probably isn't much of a risk factor in this disease. So how do we diagnose it? This is where it becomes a little bit amorphous. There is not a, a great um, uh, gold standard for diagnosing this disease. You know, if you have a melanoma on the skin or you have a funny lesion on your skin, you'll go into the dermatologist and they'll say, that looks funny, let's take it out. And they'll take it out. And they'll be able to tell you, yeah, that was just a mole that was doing something funny or actually, I'm sorry, that's a melanoma. Well, we can't do that in the eye, and there's a few reasons for that. Remember, the eyeball is hollow. It's like a basketball. If I take a basketball that has a funny thing in the side of it, and I cut a hole out of the basketball, I'm not gonna be able to dribble the basketball anymore. It's the same thing with the eye. I can't cut a piece out of the eye and hope that it saves its shape. There are some ways to take biopsies in the eye with needles, but they're, for various reasons that I'm happy to talk about when we have some more time, not great options for diagnosing melanoma. And so it actually comes down to examination. It's one of the few cancers where the diagnosis is made in the clinic with the doctor just examining you. If you think about your friends and family who've had other cancers, they've had biopsies, they've had all these other tests done. We don't do that in uveal melanoma because we're restricted by the anatomy of the eye. Uveal melanoma normally starts as a mole. Just like we get moles on our skin, we can get moles in our eye. Here's just a few pictures of what moles look like in the eye. A mole is a tumor, not a cancer, but a tumor, where there have been mutations, like Dennis spoke about, that have allowed some cells to grow, but then they've halted. They haven't become dangerous at all. They've just grown and then halted, and there's a little mole there. Most likely scenario here is the mole's never gonna cause a problem. Unfortunately, sometimes the mole does cause a problem. And here's a few examples of what moles look like when they grow. On the left, you can see kind of a pale blonde colored mole that then grew some nodules in the center of it. 
Here you can see a darker mole that grew a little nub down, like a finger pointing down. And here's a mole that just grew in every direction. It just decided the whole thing was going to grow. Here's another one with kind of a finger-like projection coming out from what was previously just a mole. When you develop a growth inside of a mole that is unregulated, that is the definition of melanoma. And I'll talk about a few ways that we do that in clinic, but here's just some pictures of each of the three areas where the melanoma can develop in the eye. This picture uh, is of the iris. Oftentimes, a melanoma in the iris is something that is visible to the patient or to the patient's acquaintances, family, friends. Um, oftentimes, it starts as a mole. We have moles in our iris as well. When a melanoma develops in the ciliary body, it's a little bit tougher to find because it's hiding behind the iris. And if it's growing, it's not going to cause you any problems, and you're not going to see it, and nobody else is going to notice it. So something gonna, is going to have to happen for you to develop or to, to find out that you have a ciliary body melanoma. Either you could have an exam with your local eye doctor and they say, oh, there's something in there. We need to get you to a, a, a specialist. Or sometimes it can grow through the wall of the eye and give you a little dark spot like you see here on the right. And those are the two scenarios where um, we catch a, a ciliary body melanoma. Now, oftentimes it will also cause you vision symptoms. When it causes vision symptoms, it's grown a little bit larger. The one on the left would have probably caused some vision symptoms. A melanoma in the choroid, if it is in the center of the vision, it's going to affect your vision and you're going to notice it. If it's not in the center of the vision, then it's going to have to cause some other problems before you figure out what's going on. So either you get an exam with your local eye doctor and they see something funny and refer you to a specialist, or you start to develop symptoms. Here's um, the development of a, a large tumor in the choroid uh, going from dark to, to pale. So how do we make this diagnosis? There's a few things that we look for. So all day, every day in my clinic, what I see is lumps and bumps inside of the eye. And the job of an ocular oncologist is to figure out, is this just a mole or is this a melanoma? Um, and that's not always an easy question, though sometimes it is. We look for a few different things, uh, and we use what's called risk stratification. So we look for risk factors or um, features of the lesion that increase the risk of it growing and spreading. Those risks include the thickness, which is probably the most important. Uh, we measure thickness with an ultrasound. Um, here you can see the ultrasound measuring this lesion. Each of these is going to be, uh, each of the risk factors is about this lesion. Usually a thickness of two millimeters or larger is something we start to worry about. Can a melanoma be thinner than two millimeters? Yes, absolutely. If it has the other risk factors and not thickness, it can still be a melanoma even if it's smaller than two millimeters. We look for what we call lipofusion or lipofuscin. This is just a scar tissue inside of a melanoma that shows that the, the lesion is active. Um, and it shows up, we, have, we take these black and white photos that you probably see your doctor looking at on their computer. The black and white photos help us figure out if there's lipofuscin or lipofusion inside of the, the lesion. 
And then we look for fluid under the retina. An active melanoma is going to produce fluid under the, ret the retina. And this fluid is actually the thing that usually signals the patient to come to us. Usually what they have is flashing lights or some sort of straight line becomes squiggly in their vision. And that leads them to see their local eye doctor. And they go through all of the referrals to get to the ocular oncologist. That's because there's fluid in the retina. The retina is like a film. If you think of an old camera, uh, you have all these features of a camera and you have your film in the back. The film takes the picture. That's what the retina is. As a little aside, I try to explain this to teenagers now. They have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> no clue what film is. So, but the retina is the film of the camera. And you can imagine if you injected some fluid under the film of your camera and tried to take a picture, you were gonna get, you're going to get some funny, distorted image. The same thing happens in your eye when you have fluid under your retina, you're getting a funny distorted image. And that's uh, usually the signal to that something is going on. This is just a, uh, an example of what a melanoma will look like if it is not treated. A melanoma will grow. That's the definition of melanoma. And unfortunately, if it doesn't get treatment, it will grow until it really destroys the eye and the vision. Um, and that's why we need to treat it. So how do we treat it? Uh, well, there's a few different ways. In some situations, we don't have to treat it. Um, we can treat it with lasers. We can treat it with radiation. We can treat it with surgery. You're going to get a whole um, talk on this at a, a later meeting by one of my good friends, Dr. Binkley. The important thing to know, as Dennis Stacy said, the future is bright. We are in a world of uveal melanoma where we have never been before. We have. Um, we have people here talking about treatments that are showing improvements in uveal melanoma where even five years ago we had no such thing. We are in a great place for uveal melanoma right now. We're understanding more and more. The treatments are becoming better and better, and it's a really good time to be in this room. So I really look forward to the rest of the day and hearing about um, advancements and, and other um, changes and developments in this world. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I feel like I just learned a lot <laughs> from both of you. So. Um, so yeah, if you haven't gotten the chance to meet me, I'm Lucy Innes. I started my PhD about two years ago um, in, in the field of biology at Wild Cornell Medicine. And one year ago, I started getting, you know, flashes and, and got a whole, it was actually in Seattle about, about a year ago. Um, so I got a whole like dark spot in my eye and I was like, what's going on? And my mom actually just, don't tell her I said this, she just called me a hypochondriac that trip. <laughs> and so I was like, it's probably nothing. People get floaters, people get flashes. And I looked online, and I was like, you know, this, this is generally normal, but if, if it happens all at once, you should probably go to a doctor. And so I did, and you know, you all know the rest. Um, and I had a really, really wonderful thesis advisor who, he was more excited than I was about me studying uh, uveal melanoma. Um, and because at first I was like, I don't want to think about it, I don't want to talk about it. Ah. Um, and eventually, you know, it was, turned out it was all I could read about and all I could talk about. Um, and so, you know, with his support, I was able to really make my thesis project about uveal melanoma. Um, 
And the thing that really surprised me, when I first got the diagnosis, I had no idea that there was such a big difference between a melanoma on your skin and a melanoma in your eye. I thought, like, wouldn't that just be the same thing? And I was super surprised when I talked to a, a researcher in the field who said, we actually treat them as completely different diseases. And, um, you know, I was like, like, what could be the difference? And so I'm going to go over a little bit. In the past year, what I've learned is the big difference between cutaneous, which is skin melanoma, and uveal melanoma. And a little roadmap. Oh, oh, this is the wrong slideshow. <laughs> is there, is there the, the different melanomas, different immunities one? Okay, I can also just ad lib. <laughs> so, the big, so okay, a little introduction on these two melanomas. So, cutaneous melanoma is the far more common, it's skin cancer, and it's caused by UV radiation. It affects about 300 people per million, um, as opposed to uveal melanoma, which as Dr. Stacy mentioned, we don't totally know the cause of it, but we're fairly sure it's not UV radiation. And this affects about six people in every million. And with those introductions out of the side, I want to talk, walk through the two, the two big features that I think make um, uveal melanoma and cutaneous melanoma different. And the big difference is how they interact with the immune system. So first, uh, the big difference is, is that they're caused by different things. And second, that they're arising in different locations in the body. So why does the cause matter in how this melanoma is going to interact with the immune system? So when UV radiation causes DNA damage, it doesn't just cause DNA damage in one place. It causes DNA damage across the entire genome. And so when there's a mutation that causes the cell to grow out of control, there's going to be a ton of other mutations as well. And this is where the visual would be nice, because it, it, when this cell is, has all these weird mutations, it starts growing all these weird, abnormal markers on the surface of the cell. And this is going to be you know, visible to other, I mean, obviously cells don't see, but it's going to be perceivable from other cells. On the surface of the cell, in, in skin melanoma, it's got weird, funky surface markers. Now, you feel melanoma has far, far, far fewer mutations. And so that means there's a lot less weird stuff going on this cell. It's not going to have these weird surface markers. And it's really going to resemble a healthy skin cell, a healthy melanocyte. And why this is important with how it interacts with the immune system is in, in the immune system, in our bodies, uh, there's the, the main fighting force against cancer is the killer T cell. You know, I know it's probably been a while since all of you have taken biology, but the killer T cell is going around the body looking for virally infected cells, bacteria, and it's looking for cancer cells. And it's doing by this by looking at the surface markers on the outside of the cell. So when it comes across that skin melanoma, this melanoma looks weird. It's got all these weird, funny surface markers um, caused by all those mutations to the DNA. And it's like, okay, we gotta attack. We, we gotta do something about this. And obviously it's still dangerous. It's got all sorts of evasion maneuvers. Um, that's why you know, cutaneous melanoma is still very dangerous. 
But the big difference with cutaneous skin melanoma and uveal melanoma is that when those T cells come across uveal melanoma, they say, I think this might just be a healthy cell. You know, it looks a little funny, but I, you know, I don't want to start attacking healthy tissue. That's really bad. And so they'll oftentimes just leave them alone. So that, like, the key takeaway there is that the cause of the mutations can really, really affect how those, how those uh, cancer cells wind up interacting with the immune system. So the next question is, why would location matter? How, why would location affect how um, the, the immune system would interact with these cancer cells? And this really comes down to the idea of how incredibly delicate the eye is. I mean, I'm sure you know, a good number of you know how delicate the eye is. When, when you get a you cut on your skin or an infection on your skin, your body can create this huge immune response and get inflamed, you know, sorts of you know, immune cells can, can get in there and, and cause a ruckus. But imagine if that happened in your eye. You know, if you, started, if you got pus in your eye, you wouldn't be able to see out of that eye. You know, even just with the, when I got an exudative retinal detachment, when I got, you know, that, that bubble, even just the, the force of that pushing against the, the, like, gel in my eye, like, I still have visual problems from that alone, much less if you got, you know, massive inflammation in your eye. So our body does all sorts of things to prevent any immune response in the eye at all. So this means that all the cells that would come in and attack you know, so, some infection on your skin, they're prevented from entering the eye at all. And if they do get in the eye, there's all these signaling molecules that say, shut down, like don't attack and get out of here. And what's really interesting is that it seems that when, you know, these uveal melanoma cells metastasize, they can carry a little bit of that, you know, suppression power with them. So that when they metastasize, any immune cells that come in, are gonna be like, whoa, 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 I gotta get out of here. Like, <laughs> we gotta shut this down. Um, and then the last thing that really affects how, um, about location that really affects how metastasis occurs um, and how, how that results in changes in, in interactions with the immune system is, and the, the visual would, would explain this a little bit better, but the eye, doesn't interact with the lymphatic system. So most places in your body, when you get an infection, all the, all the cell debris goes down the lymphatic system to the lymph nodes, where then you can raise alarm bells, like, oh, there's an infection here, let's get back up there and, and, and start fighting. And that's, that's a case for, on the skin, for cutaneous melanoma, when, when metastasis occurs, it actually goes down into the lymph node where there's a ton of T cells and they will be like, okay, we gotta get back up there, we gotta stage a whole response. But in the eye, remember the eye does not want immune cells because that can really easily cause blindness. They do not want inflammation. So the eye is one of the few places that just skips the lymphatic system altogether. And all the cell debris from the eye just goes straight into the bloodstream. And that includes metastasizing cells. In the bloodstream, there aren't a bunch of T cells looking for something to fight. In the, in the bloodstream, there's, that's really where the innate uh, immune system is. So in the bloodstream, there's natural killer cells, and they, they're actually still pretty awesome <laughs> at fighting cancer, but they do it in a really different way. And so this just means that the cells that are able to 
make, survive in the bloodstream and make it to metastasis from, from the eye are gonna be really different cells than the ones that are gonna make it from the, um, one second. Yeah, so basically the, the cells that are gonna survive the uh, metastasis in, in the eye are gonna have faced a really different road to get there than the cells metastasizing from the skin. And this just means that the cells that get to the other side are gonna be interacting with the immune system really differently. And so that's just a, a bit of a breakdown of why these two melanomas interact so differently with the immune system that clinicians actually treat them as almost an entirely different disease. Um, and just a brief recap, so uveal melanoma has far fewer mutations, whereas cutaneous melanoma has a lot. Uveal melanoma spreads straight to the bloodstream, where cutaneous melanoma spreads to the lymph nodes. The uveal melanoma is mostly targeted by natural killer cells and, and the innate immune system, whereas cutaneous melanoma is targeted by T cells in the adaptive immune system. And the takeaway from this is, so a lot of the immunotherapies and treatments designed to target uveal melanoma are used, are, are focused on activating T cells. And I think knowing this information about uveal melanoma is important for potentially coming up with future immunotherapies that focus on activating that innate immune system and those natural killer cells. Um, so thank you. Thank you guys so much. Um, if we have anyone who has questions, will you guys hold those up if you wrote anything down and then Lauren in the pink shirt will go ahead and come and grab those from you. Perfect. We just have about five minutes for questions. So we'll go ahead and take those. I feel like I'm like, okay, whatever reflection is back there is not me. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, this is just a big, huge thank you um, to both of you for a clear and concise uh, just explanation of both the different types of cancer or how cancer develops and just talking about the biology and talking about the differences. And Lucy, thank you so much for <laughs> rolling with us on not finding your second set of slides until the very end. Uh, but um, if anybody else has any questions, Wendy, do we have any coming from the audience online? Okay, well then I think we will go ahead and move into our break. So thank you again to our speakers. Let's give them a round of applause. And we're just gonna take a minute as we move on to a break to thank our sponsor, uh, vision sponsor, Aura Biosciences. And just a little about Aura Biosciences. At, their, um, at Aura, their mission is to develop a new class of oncology targeted therapies that deliver meaningful therapeutic benefit to a range of cancer indications with high unmet need in which they believe they can establish a new standard of care. They are driven by a passion and commitment to science and the patients battling cancer who are relying on them to pioneer these new therapies. So we're grateful for them and all the work that they do. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. 
feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.